0: All right, y'all ready? All right, here we go. Admittedly, the sermon was 11 pages long originally. And I thought, it's okay, we can do that. And I remembered it's Mother's Day. And I felt the pressure of, we can't do that. So we won't. So there will be a part in the, the sermon where I will tell you where I left, where I moved the notes out. And it's really whenever we get to each of the names. Of the apostles, who were these men? And so there was, like, if you want to know more, a little bit more, just like a snippet, a snapshot of of who Simon Peter is, and Bartholomew, and Thaddeus, like who are these people? Um, I have another document off to the side that I can share with you also. So if you want just kind of a a snapshot of who these apostles are, um, I will tell you at that point. Hey, I've got that. I can send it to you. So remember all notes. Every sermon that, that any of us preach are they're all, all always available, um, so that you can have whatever information you need about a passage. Um, but but we got it, we got it down. The Lord was like, "Hey, we're gonna do, we're gonna condense this, we're gonna move this, Ricky. You don't need that there. You can take it out." And uh, so here we go. Matthew chapter ten, verses one through four. I'm just titling this one: "Whom He Sends." Whom He Sends. We've been moving through Matthew, and then. We ended chapter 9 with, uh, with the Lord directing His disciples. He says the harvest is plentiful in verse 37. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. And now here we are this week. Who's He going to send? And it says, And He, Jesus, He called to Him His twelve disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the twelve apostles are these. First Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. I'm sorry, and Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. I'm not going to lie. I got... To this passage, and it was a better part of a week before I finally was able to say, "Lord, like, like, what am I? Where, where are we going with this? Like, what am I, what am I to be to do to do with this?" And um, praise the Lord, He of course gave direction. Let's just start as we do. We're just going to do a verse by verse breakdown, but do keep in mind, whenever we get to Simon, who is called Peter, we're not going to do like a, a profile of each one of them. We are going to move through these passages, and, and really 10:1 lays out a whole lot of what we need for today. First off, it, it follows last week's passage, right? Here's what we get in this verse. Jesus has called his disciples in chapter nine, verse 37 to pray, but then look at the language of 10 verse one, and he called to him his 12 disciples. He so pulls these 12 in closer. Why? Because he's about to send them out. And here is probably what we have found in our lives, is that as we draw closer to the Lord, there's this, there's this uh, um, paradox of as we draw closer to the Lord, we find that He's also sending us out further. But there is that great comfort that He is always with us. Now here's what some would think, though we can't really prove it. Some would say, and, but I, and I do think it's worth looking into this, that in verse, nine, uh, verse 37 of chapter 9, it says, Then He said to His disciples... And then 10.1 it says, then he called his 12 disciples to him. There is this belief, there's this um, um, direction that some would go that say that these are actually two different groups. And I do think that that's helpful for us. Some would say that when he was referring to his disciples, he's being followed by many. And if you look throughout Scripture, Jesus is followed by the crowds. But then it seems like he pulls into his 12 And so there are theologians and scholars who are sitting there going, this is likely the larger group of disciples, and then here are the twelve. Because otherwise, why would he refer to the twelve? Therefore, he's not sending out everyone who prayed, but only those twelve who prayed. I don't think it really matters. Just a, I don't think it matters fully that there's a great crowd of disciples, but he's only sending these 12. Or it could have honestly been, it could have been the 12 there and the 12 here, but Matthew's just trying to be very clear because he's about to use the word apostle for the first time. It could have been those 12 that he was with and these 12 that he's sending. I don't think it really matters in many ways except for this. It does get confusing in Scripture. And I'm going to show you what I mean because sometimes it seems like there are disciples who leave his side. But the twelve always remain. And so I do think that that helps us right here. So here's what I mean. Well, let me let me step back real quick. I think what matters the most about this passage, like before we study it, like in depth, I think what matters the most is that is this. Jesus has compassion for the crowds. He cares for the lost. And he is sending people out into his harvest. That's ultimately what we need to land on in this particular passage that Jesus, our God, has compassion. He does care, and He sends out. All right, so with that in mind, throughout the Gospels, there's a mentioning of disciples, like as a a big group, and then there's a mentioning of the twelve. And it's really fun once you watch this, but it's also really helpful to understand what may be going on, what may not be going on. So go to John chapter 6, verse 60. Just watch what happens here. So again, we don't we don't know if there was a big group of disciples and then there's just these 12 he sends out or if it was only the 12 that he was praying that he said to pray and then sends out. I'm not going to lie. That's where I tend to rest. Like I tend to see like a very easy understanding of that. But I do want us to look at, at this throughout the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. There's a mentioning of disciples an indication that there were many disciples. But then you get to passages where disciples leave. Here's a great one. Take a look at John 6, chapter 60, verses 60 60 through 68. John 6, 60 through 68. When many of His disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in Himself that His disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? After this, many of His disciples turned back and no longer walked with Him. Okay, but watch this. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered Him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Y'all, John 666 has stopped me a lot throughout the years. It stops me even still. Because what Jesus is talking about before then is, look, there are some of you who are going to come to me and some of you who are going to reject me. And by the way... I already know who you are, but the Father's going to be the one who does all of the work. And they're like, this is a really hard saying. We don't, we don't like this. And he says, well, it's because this is about spirit and not flesh. This is about, my, about our God doing something pretty radical, and you have to trust it. And they didn't like it, so many, quote, many of his disciples walked away. And I'm sitting there going, but they were his disciples. I thought, like, if you were clinging to the Father's side, If you were walking with Him, if you were with Him, then you you like, He will never leave you nor forsake you. He didn't leave them. They left Him, number one. The other part is this. We don't think of the word disciple in the same way today as they did then. Disciple just means learner. And so as Jesus is walking the earth and as He's teaching, the crowds of disciples are following Him to them to be a disciple didn't mean one who clung, cl- clings so closely and is so deeply committed as we are right now. It just means someone who's learning from. So there would be masses. There would be crowds of disciples because they were simply learning from Jesus. And they just got taught something they didn't like, so they no longer want to learn from Him, so they leave. So whenever you and I say today, oh, you want to be in a discipleship group, or you want to be in a D group, or oh, you're a disciple of the Lord, we mean today Someone who is so deeply committed. You identify with Christ in His life, burial, resurrection. Like you believe wholeheartedly in that. To them, it was someone who simply learned. So there were disciples who were learning from Him who left Him. Which tells us that they were never truly committed to Him. Does that make sense? But then notice how Jesus was talking to the disciples. And then He talks to the twelve. And the twelve are deeply committed. He says to the disciples, and then they say, this is too hard for us, we're leaving. And He turns to the disciples, to the twelve, it identifies them and says, are you not going to leave also? And they said, where else could we go? So, does so that, that make sense? So that's why, whenever we go all the way back to Matthew chapter 9, and then verse 10, so you can go and be flipping back there, if you would like, or if you will please. It is likely that Jesus sees the crowds... And he says to his larger group of disciples, pray to the Lord of the harvest that that I will send somebody out to work my harvest because it is plentiful and the laborers are few. So he says it to the the large and then to the twelve he says, come close because they've been praying, we've all been praying, and I'm sending you out. That's very likely. It also is very likely that he looks at the twelve and he says, look at the crowds. They harassed and helpless. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. Pray to me that I will send out laborers because the harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. And then he sends them out. And you know what's the same in both of them? The Lord cares about those who are lost. The Lord has compassion. He cares. I think we're spending way too much time of as a, what was it, the large group and then the small group and the small group and then just the smaller, like, who is he sending out? I care about this. Our God came and our God sends out because he's trying to bring everyone in. Like that's what we should focus on. Your Jesus cares for you. He cares mothers for your children. And he has sent you to them so that you can be powerful forces in their life. Dads, he has given you to your kids so that you can raise them up. To the nations, he sends out. To Fort Smith, he sends out. He's the God who comes. And he, or I'm sorry, he's the God who has come. He's the God who dwells with us. And he's the God who sends us. Why? Because, oh, I said turn back to Matthew. We can't do that. You got to go to Luke chapter 19, verse 10. We're just, some Bible Olympics, just back and forth real quick. Okay, so Luke chapter 19, verse 10. No doubt, y'all, the 12 were there praying for the harvest no matter what. I think the most important thing is that Jesus answers the prayers for the harvest. Like that's what we should see. As we pray for the harvest, you better be ready because He's going to probably be sending you or people close to you out. But whenever we care enough to pray, then He will awaken us a sense to go. But the twelve, they were there praying and our God cares about the harvest by sending his own people into the harvest. Why? Because Luke 19.10, it's this. For the Son of Man, Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Why did Jesus come, y'all? To seek and save the lost. I know it seems really basic. I know it seems really elementary probably. But like just let that sink in really quickly, really deeply. Son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Can we just let the eternal compassion ring throughout the hollowness of our hearts for just a moment? A badly broken and wicked creation exists. And God could have simply said, I'm done. He could have simply moved back and moved on to anything else. He could have left us to our own desires, our own wickedness, our own evil, our own darkness. And yet God himself condescends to us so that he himself could seek out and save the lost. This is Jesus. This is Jesus who does not say, Ascend my hill and I will accept you. He is Jesus who comes down the mountain and says, This is the way forward. Walk with me. Nope, no left or right. Right here, keep following me. We're going to do this together. He came to us so that he could bring us with us. I'm sorry, he came to us so that he could bring us with him. Why? So he could seek out the lost in all of our own broken ways. So he could save them and save us from hell. Like, so He could save us from hell. Not bad moments, not bad circumstances. So He could save us from hell and eternal separation. What kind of God is that? A God who says I created everything good and I keep saving you time and time and time again and I send my general grace and goodness over all the earth. I send you rain. I send you sunshine. I give you blessings and you don't even acknowledge it. You prayed. I answered the prayer and yet you walk away. And yet our God is relentlessly faithful. He is loving. He is compassionate. He is good. And He desires to seek and save the lost. He cares about the crowds. He cares about you. He cares about all the crowds that your kids will engage with someday. He cares about the nations. Philippians 2, 6-8 says this, that though he, Jesus, was in the form of God, and I'm intentionally reading this slowly, I just want us to think through this. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality, With God a thing to be grasped. And the language there we've we've preached over this means it doesn't not not that he the equality with God a thing to be just held on to, but held for himself, for his own selfish gain. So Jesus did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped for himself. So therefore he empties himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. More and more and more and more. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why? Because He seeks to, 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 to save the lost. So, He didn't want to hold glory for Himself. He wanted it for you. And if you're a Christian, which means that you've called upon the name of the Lord, you believe in all of who he is, you trust in all of who he is. And you know that one day you will see him again because he has died for your sins and you're going to be his forever and ever and ever now. And you graze in fields of green because a good shepherd has come to bring you into his field. Like if that's who you are, then it's because he came to seek and save the lost of whom you were. And he's saying to you and me and to all of his disciples then who were seek, who he has sought out and who are listening to him. And he says, do you see the crowds like you get it like you hear and you know who I am. We get it. Look at them. They don't get it. That's what he cares about. That's who our Jesus is. He is not a cold, distant God. He is compassionate and kind and loving and he seeks out to save the lost. If we could simply like stay in those green fields ourselves. And what I mean by that is we're called the sheep of his pasture, the sheep of his fold. And we know that like we get that idea. My fear is that that we so enjoy the pasture that we're in and we love all the benefit and the peace of it because our good shepherd is with us. And yet we look at all these other dying pastures and where people are suffering and struggling and hungry and in need and living in in conditions that they don't even know better than. And we sit there and go, oh, praise the Lord, you brought me here. And we leave them in their own pastures to starve and die of thirst. I know, happy Mother's Day, right? I want you to hear, mothers, the heart of our Savior is not that any should perish but that all would come to the knowledge of Christ and be saved. Like, that's who your God is, mothers. The desire that you have for your kids is the same desire of the Savior who came for us. Your greatest hope is not that you're going to do mothering well. It's not that you're going to have all the schedules figured out. It's not that your priorities are going to be right. It's not that they memorize all these verses. Mothers, your greatest hope is our Jesus who came to seek out and save the lost of whom our kids are or were. Our Savior is their Savior, and His desire for them is exactly the same, to bring them into green fields and to be their good shepherd forever and ever and ever. So what does Jesus do? He says, you see the fields, you know my heart. You've seen me do ministry. You've, seen what, you've heard what I teach. And now it's time for you to go and do the same. That's what He says to His 12. I love how Warren Wearsby just brings it to a point. Because I I do hope, I hope that God awakens in you what He's been awakening in me, that I sit still and and I shelter myself entirely way too much to the degree that I probably do not actually reflect the heart of Christ for others. Like that's what He's been doing in me for these last couple of weeks. Listen to what Warren Wearsby says. Christ had asked them to pray about the harvest in nine thirty six 36 through 38. Now he sends them into the harvest to serve. It is a, listen, it is a serious thing to pray for the lost because God will want to use you to help answer those prayers. It's a dangerous prayer to pray for the harvest because if you're going to pray for that, then God may very well be sending you out. There's a very real situation, though, in some lives where they can't be sent out. They're just not physically able. Life does not allow them to go out. And that's valid. Like sometimes it's just not able, but they can give so that others can go. They can pour into so that others can go. They can facilitate opportunities so that others can go. Like there are opportunities to go and there are opportunities to give. And there's always the opportunity to keep praying for that harvest, for those open doors for everyone as we go. But Jesus said to all of his disciples throughout all time, as you go, make disciples. Parents, this happens primarily in the home. If you're making disciples elsewhere and we're not making disciples in the home, then we're neglecting our call and our duty that we were given from the very beginning. But even from the home, we're to go out and make disciples as we go. Why? Because we're going into the crowds and we don't go alone. That's what the the great commission, that last reminder, that great comfort. Lo, I am with you to the end of the ages. I am with you. You never mother alone, mothers. It feels like it, but it's a lie of the devil if you believe that all of this that you're doing is on your own. Sometimes it just needs to be the most peaceful prayer. Lord, help me or help me to remember that you're with me in this moment. And he is. He is. He just allows us to walk through messes so that we rely more and more upon Him. He lets us get to the end of ourselves, dads and and church members, brothers and sisters in Christ. Like He allows us to get to the end of ourselves so that we realize that we absolutely need our Savior and He is with us. Okay, I'm going to keep going. There is a shift here though where Jesus has been doing all ministry actually. All right, so I'm going to go back all the way to ten one. I just want to point out something really cool. If we go from... Matthew one, 1 to 10.1, to Jesus is the one who's been doing all the ministry. Like, they've been alongside Him, but He is the one who has the fullness of the power. He's the one who is healing and casting out, but now He's, look at this, He's giving them that authority. Like, that's a really cool thing. And it says that, <clears throat> excuse me, not that they learned this, but He gave. He gave them the authority to heal, the authority to cast out demons, Why? Because they're about to go, and they're His ambassadors. They're His apostles, His messengers, and He gives them all the fullness of all the power that they need to do the work that they've seen working through Him so that they can also reach out and serve and seek and save the lost and point all of them back to Jesus Christ. Matthew Henry says it this way. He says, It is an undeniable proof of the fullness of the power which Christ used as a mediator, Y'all follow me? Undeniable proof of the fullness of power which Christ used as a mediator that He could impart His power to those He employed and enable them to work the same miracles that He wrought in His name. You got some old English language in there, but here's what Matthew Henry is saying: such was the fullness of all the power in Jesus that he could give that power in its fullness to his disciples and yet still retain all the fullness so that they could do all the same ministry that he himself was doing and it was never depleted. Such is the fullness of God in Christ. That's incredible. And you know what's really, really incredible is that he gave it to those 12 right there. When we believe in Christ, scripture tells us that his Holy Spirit comes in and dwells within you and me. And so the same spirit that moved those 12 out so that they could do miracles and believe and and lead others to him. That's the exact same power that resides within us. Like it's the fullness of God's power in us, except we're never apart. He's about to send these 12 out. They're going to go two by two. I'll show you where we get that, but they're going to go two by two and they're going to go away from his presence But did you know that you and I are never away from the presence of the God who sought us out and saved us? He is always with us forever and ever and ever. We are never away from our Lord. And the same power that he gave them now indwells us. Why don't we feel like it? Because it probably terrifies us and makes us uncomfortable, especially if you're a Baptist. We don't talk a whole lot about the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit moving within us as Baptists. But you read Scripture, and it's powerful. I have a a quote in the, the front of my Bible. Why aren't we filled with the Holy Spirit? We don't want to be. That's what Dr. Horn said preaching at Eastside several years ago. Why aren't we filled with the Holy Spirit? We don't want to be. Because if we were, imagine what we would be doing. Look at what happened when the apostles were filled with the Holy Spirit and when? And the early disciples. And I say that because I'm speaking to our flesh and our spirit. We're like, no, no, no. I do want it. I do want it. The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. But if we would just simply live in the fullness of who he is and what he has given to us. Although in the form of likeness of man, he, Jesus, is still God. And the fullness of Him is God. And God is pleased to dwell in Him. Listen to Colossians 1, 15 through 19. It says that He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him, Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That's our Jesus. He is not some mere mortal man. He is Jesus, and the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. And in this moment that we see in Matthew 10, he says, here is my fullness. I am giving my fullness to you. And so it all goes out, and it's never depleted. And he has spread it throughout all of his believers, and it's never depleted. And all glory goes to him if we would just simply trust him. So now we go to Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 through 4. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. I don't know why I said Zebedee that way, but I did. Zebedee. There you go. Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Him. First off, what is an Apostle? Like the capital letter A, Apostle. You need to first off know this. This is the first and the only time that Matthew uses the term Apostle to refer to the Twelve. Otherwise they refer to the Twelve. So Apostle shows up here, but it's actually really, really cool. Earlier we talked about how a disciple was a learner, and the word was mathētes. The word here for Apostle actually means one sent forth Right, we've heard that part, like one sent. That's usually like, that's abbreviated. You need like the full definition. An apostle is one sent forth to represent an official. That, to me, changes it. Because we're all changed. Or I'm sorry, we're all changed in the mind. We're all sent out. But the full meaning of apostle there is one who sent forth to represent an official. And he just told them, you are my twelve Apostles. And you are sent forth to represent me. I am the official. And where you go, I go. And when they see you, they should see me. And they were referred to as the apostles. Capital letter A, it's the first and only time in Matthew that it appears. So should you ever go on Jeopardy? And they say, like, what, where does that first and only time appear in the book of Matthew? You do know the reference now. Watch this. They were disciples in their learning. They are apostles in their going. As he sent them to represent him, then they became apostles. I do want to make a little caveat here because we're about to move on to the next point. There has been the term apostle used more and more these days, right? So, um, is, are, you, are you Pastor Ricky? Or are you Apostle Ricky? Um, there's an apostolic movement, um, and there's like a new apostolic movement. Uh, I would say this. I believe that the term Apostle with a capital letter A should only be used to refer back to those original 12. The capital letter A Apostles are those 12. Are we all sent to represent the official? Yes, we're all little letter As. Absolutely. I have no problem with that. But I never want to be called Apostle Ricky or Apostle Massengel. Um, but that is something that you you may, if you've like looked uh, at church movements, you're seeing the the term apostle used more and more, um, as a capital letter one who is sent forth to represent an official, and they are the apostle of that church. If it's a capital letter A, I don't see that. I do believe that this is a closed group that is meant for them. So anytime you see capital letter A, it refers back to those twelve, and I'm going to hold to that one. All right, what's going on with the twelve? I think that this is really cool. I'm gonna get a drink of water before I do this one. Hang on. It's, sorry, my I'm, allergies or whatever. I'm just really dry today. What's going on with the twelve? A whole lot is going on with these twelve. I mean, there's twelve of them. Think about it. There's twelve of them. It's a and it's a closed group. And if you've read the Old Testament, then you know that 12 is a pretty big number. And even if you've read the Old Testament and you're like, I'm going to look at him like I know where he's going, don't worry, I'm going to tell you. 12 is a really big number. And 12 at the beginning of the Bible is a big number, and 12 at the end end of the Bible is a really big number. There's something very significant, I believe, going on with the twelve. Now some also are on the other side. They're like, oh, he just picked some together around him. And, but then they do seem to represent something. So what's going on? In its simplest form, I want to consider this. When God formed the nation of Israel, how many tribes were there? Twelve. These were the tribes that formed the nation of Israel, the nation that would represent and proclaim God to the pagan nations all about them but there were 12 in the nation of Israel. But we also know the history of Israel's faithlessness despite God's faithfulness and patience and long-suffering. What they refused to do as a nation, Jesus does now. And so He gathers 12 men around Him who do represent a new Israel. Right, What the nation of Israel did not do in its 12 original tribes, he's gathering these men who are going to go out and they're going to proclaim him. They're going to represent a new Israel. He is forming an Israel that is not bound geographically by ethnicity or bloodlines anymore. Do I believe, just so you know, that the nation of Israel today is incredibly important? Oh, absolutely I do. I do still feel like the physical the manifestation of Israel is important, but I think that we are the, we are the, the Jews. Um, how does Paul say it? We are now spiritual Jews. So the nation of Israel also is greater than the boundaries, and it's greater than ethnicity. So here is a new Israel that he's establishing. He chooses 12 ordinary men. You're going to hear me use that word, ordinary or common men. He chooses 12 ordinary men, places them around himself, and declares that the kingdom of God is here Now, Pay attention to that. There's 12 men around him, 12 of them. And as he's moving, the kingdom is growing. The kingdom is building. There is a new Israel. There's a new understanding of what salvation means to be found in Israel and God and Jesus. No wonder then the Jews were offended. They would know what's going on. Those who study scripture, those who know the language, no wonder the Jews were offended and wanted him killed. Some would say it's blasphemy. Because he would sit there and say, I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. And that was blaspheme for them. Some of them were simply offended because all that they trusted in and all that they built and the temple that they revered, he is saying, I'm the temple, actually. Like what you've constructed is not full enough. I am fuller. The nation that you've become is not good enough. I am better. Like all of this is going on, and they would know it. No wonder they were offended. But these 12 are important, not only in the temporary, but in the eternal as well. Okay, So we've hit Israel, the 12 nations, we've hit the 12 men in that moment around Him. You've got to see two really cool passages, and then we'll we'll keep going. Go to Luke 22, verse 28 through 30. Don't worry, we're almost done. Mother's Day lunches, Mother's Day celebration, Mother's Day conversations, naps. That's not happening. But everything else about Mother's Day. Okay. Luke twenty-two, twenty-eight 28 through 30 says this. Jesus is talking and he says to his 12, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials. And I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Catch that? These 12 ordinary men that God gives the fullness of His Spirit to, they are going to be in the kingdom and they're going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. They are of great importance. Common, everyday people. Look at Revelation 21, 9 through 14. So you're going to go to the very end of the book. Revelation 21, 9 through 14. Cool passage. Not going to lie. I've read this one and I've overlooked this key thing over and over and over again. And it made me step back and go, oh my goodness, 10-1 is incredibly important in that it solidifies the work and ministry that Jesus was doing in these men. In Revelation 21, 9-14, through it says this about the future. Then came one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of seven last plagues and spoke to me saying, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and at the gates, 12 angels. And on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. Cool, huh? 12, 12, 12, 12. And there's the tri- tribes of Israel. And then verse 13, on the east, three gates. On the north, three gates. On the south, three gates. And on the west, three gates. And on the wall of the city, I'm sorry, and the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb." That is so cool. Like these common everyday tax collectors and fishermen, their names are inscribed in heaven forever and ever and ever because of the fullness of a God who came. Jesus did something really remarkable there. And you and I get to be a part of his kingdom because he comes in and he gives these 12 and he gives a fullness of what he gave to them. He gives it to us as well. And there are still more to be brought in. and We get to be a part of that. Whenever that heaven is descending where the old heaven and the old earth are going to be married into the new heaven and the new earth, and we get to watch that and see all the glory, and we get to remark, like, um, stand and wonder at all that God's done from beginning to end, we get to bring people to watch that. Or not. But I feel like we're supposed to be doing something with that. This will be an incredible sight. But did you catch that those 12, he didn't just bring them in, he sent them out, Okay but then we also see that they get to judge the tribes of Israel. We also see that their names are inscribed on the foundations of heaven forever and ever. They're incredibly important. We need to be careful about them being common, ordinary people like us. They were. But we also need to be like honoring them because God did an incredible work in them and they are honored forever and ever and ever. There's something in the ordering also. Just real quick. He sends them out in pairs. If you actually read this and you go back, it'll, um, well, let's, let's just watch. Watch what happens. The names of the 12 apostles were first Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, James and Thaddeus, Simon and Judas Iscariot. Like the pairing tells us something that, that Matthew doesn't. If you actually go to Mark, I won't have you turn there, but Mark chapter 6, verse 7, it says, And he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over unclean spirits. So that's why their names are ordered in that way. But there's also this. Every time you see those names... I'm sorry, I'll go a little bit slower. I saw some of you, like, flipping there. Matthew chapter 6, verse 6 through 7. Uh, I'm sorry, Ma- Mark 6, verse 7. That's where it says that he called the twelve, and He began to send them out two by two. And you see that here in Matthew. So this is where our Gospels complement each other. They don't contradict, they complement. They come together, and the pieces of information they provide really help us have a better understanding. In every list of the apostles that you see, you're going to see two very clear distinctions. Peter is always first. Peter is always first, and he seems to be the leader of the apostles, though, get this, though he is far from perfect. He's quick to speak... He even denies Jesus three times at Jesus' trial. He's not perfect, but he's the leader. There should be some comfort in that. And the last one always listed is Judas Iscariot. And even here it's noted that he's the one who betrays Jesus. And in John, he knows that Judas is the one who's going to betray him from the beginning. I don't understand that mystery. I want to understand, if you know He's the one who's going to betray you, why do you pull Him in? There are mysteries that we weren't meant to understand, and we're going to spend way too much time trying to figure out mysteries whenever it's so clear that we just simply need to know that God is doing an incredible work. The reality before us is this, that both of these men walked life with Jesus. I'm talking about Peter and Judas. I just want you to watch something. They walked life with Jesus, both of them. They knew Him deeply. They heard His teachings, exact same teachings. They observed him going off privately to pray and they watched him work miracles in people and in nature and yet Judas still betrays him. I, it just blows my mind. Exact same opportunity, to different results. One believes, one doesn't believe. And I don't know what to do with that, I'm not going to lie. All I know to do is keep putting the word out there and let the word do the work that it's going to do over and over and over again. But it also just reminds us that those that he sends out, people are going to, the crowds are going to keep seeing these miracles worked and some will believe and some won't believe. And then we're going to see how they're supposed to handle that. All right. What do we, so here is where I took out three pages of notes. And by this point, you're going, even with comfy chairs, thank you. Okay. If you want to know about each one of, more about each one of these men, then that I can send you those notes. It's a, it's about two to three pages. It's really easy to 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 read. Instead, I think just some high points, and it's this. Well, I'll also say there's a book by John MacArthur called Twelve Ordinary Men. It is it is a good book. I do think that he speculates in some points where I'm like, okay, maybe. Seem like we're stretching that understanding a bit, but I understand what he's trying to do, but I do think it is a commendable book that I would give to you. It's a, that I would, I would commend to you. It's a good summary and study of each one of these men and who they were. And you will see that they really were just ordinary people like you and me, but here's a long and short of that list of men. Cause if you go through and you would even see this in the notes, there's some of these men we know nothing about at all. Like we know nothing. Like you go from one commentator to the other commentator to the other commentator. They're like, well, this one could be maybe this person. And after they do all of this, they say, but really, we don't know. And evidence is pretty thin. There are apostles that we know nothing about. And then there's some we know a lot about. I think that the ones that we know nothing about should give us just as much peace and comfort as those we know everything about. All right, so what can we glean from that list that you have in front of you? This, God used ordinary, forgettable men for His glory. Some of them we know much about, some we don't know, as in like nothing. These are forgettable men, sinful men, outcasts, rich and poor, poorly educated businessmen, tax collectors, faithful, prideful, ambitious, and it's this group of common men that Jesus called to His side to be His hands and His feet and His voices to the nations. What excuse do we have? Like He's covered them all there. Did you hear that list? Like, If you were to go through that list, you're going to get this. They are forgettable, because we know nothing about them. They're sinful, they're outcasts, they're rich and poor, they're poorly educated or wise businessmen. They're tax collectors, which were outcasts in and of themselves. They are faithful, though. They are prideful and ambitious, seeking their own gain. And it's this group of common men that Jesus called to His side to be the hands and the feet and the voices to the nations. It's not who they are, it's who they are, it's who sends them, and He does an incredible work. Y'all, those whom history forgets which will be you and me. One day there will only be a tombstone that has my name on it, and even then age will wear it away. History will forget us. History will forget the apostles, and it already has some of them. But those whom history forgets, God delights in because he never forgets. He knows their name. He wrote their names on the walls. He writes our names in the book of life, and nothing gets to remove it from the book of life. Like, you get that? Like, there's an incredible work going on here. He knit them together in their mother's womb. These apostles whom history's forgotten, He knit them together in their mother's womb, and He recreated them in Christ Jesus for the good works that He had prepared beforehand for them to go do. Their names, their lives, their memories, they are not lost to God, nor is yours. You may wonder what in the world is going to endure after me and after I die. Y'all, we are too worried about the legacy in this world whenever we have eternal life afterward. This is all just preparation. And I want to be as prepared as I can to enjoy all the fullness and the glory that God has for me. All of us, time may forget, just as those apostles are, but God will remember our faithfulness and He will reward the faithfulness All of this, y'all, is not in vain. Mothers, it is not in vain. Dads, it's not in vain. Grandparents, it's not in vain. We keep pressing on, brothers and sisters in Christ, because all of this that exhausts us and wears us out, though we know it's for the good, it's not in vain. All the really messy um, worship nights that you're trying to have at your house where everybody's screaming and dad's getting mad because the kids aren't paying well enough attention whenever he just wants to ask a simple question, it's not in vain. Whenever we gather here, it's not in vain. Whenever you go and you share the love of Christ with a neighbor, it's not in vain. Maybe they won't believe in that moment, but it's not in vain. None of it's in vain because your God knows your faithfulness, and he calls you to do this. That's what we see in that list of the apostles. We could look at snapshots of who they are, but I think it's better to understand them as a group. They were common, everyday people, and yet God does something really incredible. Though Jesus could do all things, listen to this, though he could do all things on his own because he Is God. We see in his life that through that, though all power and authority and might are his, he used common everyday people alongside him to fulfill his ministry. And he does it today. Should Jesus want to, he from the throne could say, All are saved, all hunger gone, all needs met. He could simply speak and everything would be solved. But what he does is he says, These things need to be done. I see the crowds from my throne. I see. And I'm with you always. We see that in Stephen whenever he's being martyred. Jesus sees him. He sees Jesus. Like our God's eyes, it tells us in the Old Testament, that his eyes search to and fro, seeking those who desire to live a righteous life, and he will uphold them with his righteous right hand, if we would but trust him. We don't even give the opportunity to be upheld because we just hold ourselves close. But these men, those 12 men, you look into their lives and they are willing to say, okay. Matthew 9, 36, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Luke nineteen ten, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. There's a harvest, it's plentiful. The laborers are absolutely few. And the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. John Piper said this, he says, missions exist because worship of God doesn't. I like that. Missions exist because worship of God doesn't. And I don't just mean overseas missions. I mean, I think that's absolutely valuable. That's tend to be where we default. But I also read in scripture that it seems like our lives are to be on our mission field, like where we go is where God has ordained for us to be. And those around us are those that He has placed in us into their context. And so we're to live life on mission. We call that term missional. We're to have missional lives. If you go back to the DNA of cross life, one of the things that we want to enforce is not that we just come together as a church to do missions, but that we are encouraging one another to live life on mission. And that we're living missional lives. And that's why we need the text back and forth. That's why we need the accountability back and forth. Because to do mission and to live life on mission is exhausting. But it's not in vain, because God is faithful. But all around you, missions, to live on missions, it exists because the worship of God around you doesn't. And is He not worthy to be praised? Is He not worthy of that worship? Absolutely, He is. And so we have to go live on on mission, because it exists, because the worship of God doesn't. Because missions, I'm sorry, because worship of God doesn't exist, we need to also look at this. That if we're not willing to be on mission, then we have to understand that there's a harvest that is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Who in the world will go take care of the harvest if we're unwilling? And if everybody's unwilling? And if we're always waiting on another laborer to go? But you and I are to live on mission. The harvest is plentiful. The laborers are few. because the, And the Son of God came to seek and to save the lost. Just as Jesus called the twelve close to Him so that He could send them out, and I promise you we're landing, we have this... So he called his apostles close at the very end, after his resurrection, and he told them directly, and he tells us by extension this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always. I am with you Always to the end of the age. I like the comfort. I don't always like the command. But the comfort is in the command. Wherever it is that we go, he goes with us to our living rooms, to Walmart, to the nation, to the nations. This is what we see is the pattern of God. Our God came to us. Well, actually, you could go even be God the Father sent his son. And then the Son sends us so that we can bring glory to Him. That's what we see in this passage to me. He's given them authority to do these things. He's given us the authority to do these things. Who in the world is He to give us the authority? All authority in heaven and on earth is His. Therefore, go, and I am with you to the end of the age. Isaiah 6 is where we're going to end. It's where we started our service. It's where we're going to end. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1-8. through 8. Isaiah 6, 1-8 says this. In the year that King Isaiah died, I, Isaiah, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of His robe filled the temple. And above Him stood the seraphim, and each had six wings. These are terrifying, by the way. With, with two He covered His face, and with two He covered His feet, and with two He flew. And you read other descriptions, and they're just like these massive things. And one called to the other and said, Holy, Holy Holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called. And the house was filled with smoke, and I said, Woe is me, for I am lost." I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And then one of the seraphim flew to me having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar and he touched my mouth and he said, behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us, us being the Trinity. And then I said, here I am, Send me. If we have seen the king, and if he is worthy, then we should say, Here I am, send me. Wherever it is, God, that you send me to go, I will go. This, here I am, send me, should be the cry of our hearts after gazing upon the goodness and the kindness of Jesus towards us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Lord, that we have Your Word. And Lord, I know there's a lot on our minds today as we're thinking about what the day looks like. And we're thinking about our mothers and the mothers who are, who are here and not here. But Lord, I also thank You for Your Word that keeps us thinking about that which is greater than any day. Lord, greater than any year, greater than any decade or millennium or century. Lord, greater than anything is Your glory. Lord, I pray that your word does what it's supposed to do in us. We're told it does not go out in vain. We're told that it it divides soul from spirit and it convicts us, Lord, and it works in us. And Lord, we also know it's a terrible thing to be in the hand of a living God. Lord, I pray that you do with our lives what will bring you the most glory. But Lord, I really pray for the harvest. The laborers are few. There are those who do not know you. So, Lord, I pray that Cross Life is a church that sends out. It's been who we wanted to be from the beginning, that we are a church where we come, get encouraged and equipped, and then we're a church that goes throughout the week. And then we come back to get encouraged and equipped, and then we go. And we come and get encouraged and equipped, and then we go. And all of this, praising you and worshiping you with our very lives and our voices. Lord, would you do that in Cross Life, that we are a church who's ready to send out to the harvest. Lord, give us that heart. Do that work in us, which only you can do. And I praise our son's holy name. Amen.